You're listening to the Hippie Haven podcast, where we have honest conversations about how easy and sometimes how hard it can be to save the planet and why it's so important. If this is your first time listening, welcome. My name's Callie. I'm a zero waste activist and consultant, the founder of Bestowed Essentials, my line of ethical and eco-friendly lifestyle products, and I travel full-time around the United States in my camper van, hence my blog name, ahippieinavan.com, which is where you can go to learn more about me, this podcast, and all the work I do. My mission is to inspire you to take action, because the planet needs our help now more than ever, and I truly believe that together, we can make a difference. This episode of the Hippie Haven podcast is brought to you by Bestowed Essentials, my own line of ethical and eco-friendly self-care products. They're all natural, certified vegan and cruelty-free, in zero-waste packaging. Visit bestowedessentials.com and use the code HIPPIEHAVEN10 to save 10% off your first order. Thank you so much for supporting my work. Today I'm interviewing Katie Patrick, who's an Australian-American environmental engineer, software designer, author, podcaster, and public speaker with 20 years of experience in her field. After graduating from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology with a degree in environmental engineering, she worked as an environmental design engineer in Sydney, Australia, on some of the world's first platinum LED certified commercial buildings. She served on the board of Australia's national eco-label, Good Environmental Choice Australia, and she won the Cosmopolitan Women of the Year Award for Entrepreneurship. Katie has been a media spokesperson on environmental issues and has been featured regularly on TV, radio, and in print publications, including Vogue Australia. She was the CEO of green lifestyle magazine Green Pages Australia and was appointed environmental brand ambassador for Volkswagen, Lipton Tea, and Wolfblast Wines. Today, her tech company, Hello World Labs, applies data-driven gamification and behavior change techniques to solve the world's biggest environmental problems. She is the author of Detrash Your Life in 90 Days, The Art of Zero Waste Living, and Katie is about to release her second book, How to Save the World, which has an accompanying podcast and YouTube channel by the same name. Katie is also the creator of Zero Wasteify, an app designed to better measure municipal solid waste and Urban Canopy, a map-based application that uses spectral imaging of urban heat islands to encourage urban green initiatives. Katie is truly a powerhouse in everything she does, and I am so honored to be interviewing her today. We're going to talk about so many insightful things in this episode, and all of the links for the things that we talk about will be in the show notes for this episode at ahippieinavan.com forward slash 013. Let's get started. Okay, so first and foremost... What led you into the sustainability field? Oh, well, I mean, I've been in love with nature since I was a little girl. I used to, uh, I grew up doing a lot of art as a child and I used to love drawing flowers and growing things and drawing birds. Uh, and that love of nature just drew me towards environmental studies. And uh, as, a, as a teenager, I was also very distressed by learning what was going on in the planet. Uh, in Australia, we used to see on the, on the nightly news uh, whaling very graphic whaling of whales being harpooned and um you know spilling blood into the ocean and i found this enormously distressing so i was very called to join the environmental movement um and then went on to study environmental engineering and made it my my profession so tell me about your book how to save the world well how to save the world is a design guide for tackling environmental and social change problems so it takes you through a series of 10 steps and each step has a whole bunch of exercises. 
of how you actually take the thing that you want to change in the world, where it could be making less waste in the world or reducing carbon dioxide emissions or saving trees or helping kids eat more vegetables uh, or any type of issue, and then how you actually break that thing that you want to change uh, in the world, how you actually break it down and actually create measurable change. So there's a lot of books out there uh, about, you know, what you actually need to do. Like we need more solar panels and we need less plastic pollution and we need better gender and racial equality, etc. But when you actually get started on one of those projects, there's not much information out there about how to actually make a measurable difference. So while we know what we need to do, we've kind of been in the dark about how to do it and we really need to draw from the fields of uh, social psychology, of social influence, uh, also from game design, from the way we uh, respond to data. And I've uh, ventured into all these fields to understand how we actually influence groups of people to change the world. So the book is really a guide. If you want to double the amount of solar panels in your city or halve the amount of waste, then uh, the book is like a, a guide about how you actually make that measurable change. Who is the book for and who is it not for? Uh, it's for anybody who wants to influence their community. So mainly sustainability professionals, people who, if it's your full-time job to influence people around you, there are people who are sustainability managers at cities, at corporations. Uh, you might work for a not-for-profit and be trying to influence people. Uh, that's the core people who really get something out of it. Uh, but it's also really good if you're scratching around looking for more meaning and purpose and you don't quite know where to start, like you're looking for your next big idea or you're trying to figure out, I really want to do something more meaningful with my life. Where do I start? I just don't think there would be anything better than to go through the different steps and the teachings in the book. Uh, and it will take you from not having an idea to having a really well-developed idea and concept and strategy and campaign for changing the world when you get to the end of the 10 steps. Absolutely. And one of the most important takeaways that I've gotten from it so far, because I'm not all the way through the book yet, um, is the value action gap. So can you tell me more about the value action gap and how that will affect environmental activists and the work that they do? Yes, the value action gap is right up there at the, at the front. It's the first bit of the book that uh, you get into. Uh, and it's this amazing phenomenon that everybody should understand if you're trying to change the world. And unfortunately, I didn't understand it until I was about 10 or 15 years into my career. And it's this phenomenon that if you educate people about a topic, like, for example, climate change, um, they will naturally become very concerned about that topic. If you, you teach them about the glaciers and about the polar bears and about the parts per million. Um, but then if you then track their behavior over the next six months, you'll find that that education and that emotional concern just doesn't translate into an action at all. And this is quite easy to study. You know, a lot of different universities have studied this phenomenon. Uh, and so this problem is that most people who are trying to change the world fall into this, this style of activism where they're trying to educate people. They think if we just educate people, then they'll change. And it's also known as the information deficit hypothesis that, oh, if we just, if there's like a missing puzzle piece of education and if we just fill it with knowledge, then everybody will change. But the thing is that education doesn't translate to behaviour. If you're really, really concerned about plastic in the ocean, that does not necessarily translate at all to you stopping to use plastic. So what we need to do is see 
is see changing the world through a totally different lens, which is through a behavioural lens, as a behavioural science. Like how do you get a person to do an action? And that's a really different strategy and a different way of thinking than how do you actually educate someone about the issues. I say I think everybody has at, at some point not known about the value action gap and thought that educating people would drive change. Uh, but it's one of the most important things to understand so you don't end up making that mistake and just focusing solely on education and not really thinking about uh, the behavioral science side of change. Absolutely. I had never heard of it before. And so it was very shocking to me. But at the same time, as soon as I thought about it, it wasn't surprising at all. It made a lot of sense. Um, and it was rather disheartening, like, oh, oh, goodness, we can educate people about all of these serious problems and still not see any action out of that. But then, of course, the rest of your book gets into what to do about that. And so my next question is kind of a difficult one because obviously you, you wrote an entire book on the topic, but how would you best sum up how we, say, how we can save the world? Uh, well, without going into individual green tips in terms of a strategy, uh, the book has an overall um, premise, which is ultimately measuring what you want to change in the world and drawing out your creative strategy from uh, the measurement. So measurement can be seen as something boring. It might just sound like, oh, that's just, you know, kind of like engineering or beam counting uh, or accounting. Um, but to really see measurement as the backbone of the creative process. So if you're working on something like zero waste, which you get involved in, instead of just getting attracted to whatever is emotionally compelling or maybe even emotionally disturbing, like those pictures of, you get those pictures of gulls that have the, the plastic stuck in their, in their bellies and that's a very distressing image. Uh, actually just looking at the numbers, like getting the, the reports and the EPA data and starting to look into the numbers and then sort of starting to draw a strategy up from that and how you, you can better measure the amount of waste and develop a feedback loop. And if no one's heard of a feedback loop before, it's kind of like a Fitbit, right? So this idea of the Fitbit for the planet, uh, you know, probably you might know how much you weigh, how much money is in your bank account. If you have a Fitbit, it's telling you, uh, what your heart rate is and how many steps you're taking. Uh, we want to start knowing this data about what we're working on um, much more immediately than we do know. At the moment, the amount of no single person, unless they're actually weighing it themselves, no single person knows how much trash they're making. The, the garbage companies that collect the trash, they just don't send us this information. So it's really hard to be motivated and to track our progress with reducing waste if we're not actually getting the numbers and we can't actually see a chart. So basically we just really want to get into the numbers um, to develop our strategy and also get this immediacy of feedback because when we have the immediacy of feedback, then we can start layering on different behavioural drivers on top of that. Like, for example, you can give people like a smiley face if they are doing well, if you're actually measuring it. Um, you can make more uh, effective infographics of communication about data and show people the scale and then comparing city against city, person against person, house against house, you think that's a really powerful way of driving change in a way that just educating people doesn't really do. Um, you can get people to commit to pledges. You know, I pledge to reduce this by 20% or 50%, you know, when you're using measurement. But when you don't have the measurements, that's kind of in the dark. And that's another really strong behavioural driver is asking someone to a pledge. And when I mean a pledge, I just mean like writing it out on a piece of paper. I commit to giving up plastic water bottles. I commit to next time I buy a car, getting an electric car uh, and maybe making them public. If you've got a, an office building, you might get people to do pledges and put them all on the wall, right? 
that's an example in the book of how you could get people to use this pledging way, which could be really effective, instead of maybe another way which you might get everyone to watch a documentary. You get everyone to watch a documentary, they all go, wow, that's really disturbing. And then everyone tomorrow, they just come back and then they're just exactly the same. Uh, whereas the pledge would probably, probably most likely would work to actually change the numbers. Uh, and so the book is about just creating that skeleton of, of measurement and then layering on these different types of design and um, sort of behavioural levers on the, on the measurement. Um, another one is just using like an emotive animal. When someone's learning something, if you use a, like an avatar, like a cartoon of a smiling owl, got uh, in one experiment, got 23% people, the students taking the study got 23% higher grades than if they had an owl, the fact that it wasn't smiling. So there are these little things that we can do to, uh, to increase uh, the impact of what we're what we're doing, and what I said with the value action gap is not to um, not that we don't need to educate people, but we need to do a little bit of education in the scheme of a bigger behavioural map to try and get people to actually drive the drive the actions. Uh, I mean, that's kind of like a basic skeleton of seeing the seeing world problems through this lens of measurement and behavioural science. And that's a very sort of meta overview. I don't know if it, it totally makes sense to everybody listening. Um, it's kind of, it sounds very abstract uh, when I explain it that way. Um, but that's a very, very overall sort of meta view of how to save the world um, to, as a, like a strategic approach because a lot of people who are trying to change the world are just not making a measurable difference. You know, they're working on... Um, they're working on strategies that maybe just aren't really doing anything. Like they might be putting a lot of effort in, but not actually making any change. Uh, so when you do start to look through at your project through the lens of, am I making a measurable result? And am I using behavioral science to drive action? Then you can actually make sure that every time you're putting effort into your project or your campaign, you can actually see a measurable result at the end of the day. Yeah. And so it's a lot, it's less about education and more about competition, social pressure, um, like you mentioned with the pledges, having them write that pledge is their first, it might be a baby step, but it's still an action step. And of course, you go into so much detail about all of this in your book. And now, How to Save the World is actually your second book, the first being Detrash Your Life in 90 Days, which teaches you 148 actionable tips on starting a zero-waste lifestyle. Uh, what is your favorite tip from that book, one that you still use to this day? Uh, when I was putting together the zero waste tips, it was really fun to realize that I could actually make my own sunscreen and foundation that I, I, at first I thought it was really crazy to be able to make your own cosmetics and toothpaste. I remember when I first Googled how to make your own toothpaste, I'm like, whoa, this is so crazy. I can't believe I'm even Googling this. Um, and then I realized it was just no big deal at all. Uh, but I did actually follow a recipe where I actually made my own foundation uh, and I had to buy some of the ingredients So, and they did come in a little bit of plastic so it wasn't like completely zero waste um, but it was pretty close and with zinc oxide powder and I think some vegetable glycerin and a little bit of emulsifying wax and a bit of, um, I think I even put like cinnamon in it. Uh, and maybe even a little bit of turmeric for the colour, I actually made this foundation that was largely indistinguishable from something that you would buy at the pharmacy. Uh, and I used it, and I, I still use it. Um, and I've done that every, now for two years. 
And so I was, um, yeah, I was so impressed about how you can make these things yourself. Anything, deodorant, toothpaste, moisturizer, sunscreen. It's just like making a cake. They all come with ingredients. You can buy them and you can make it yourself without having to fill your bathroom up with all this plastic clutter and spend a whole lot of money on it and have it full of all these um, these kind of weird perfumes. Oh, my God, my favorite tip. I don't know what my favorite tip is. Well, I really like the use of cardboard, which is something that is not really um, that commonly talked about. Uh, but I'm just going to talk about it because it's novel. Uh, but you can actually buy on Amazon a whole, uh, like, kids, um, you can buy, like, a rocket ship uh, and a spaceship and a house all made out of cardboard, not plastic, and then your kid can draw on it. And then when it's finally trashed, you can just compost it in the backyard. Uh, but cardboard can be made into just about anything. It can be made into lampshades, into furniture. There's all this really exciting cardboard furniture. There's even a book about how to make things out of cardboard uh, and cardboard is really amazing because it's one of the you, recycling it basically is not that exciting you can't do that much with the recycled um, you know when you take something you mush it up it's usually downcycled and it's not very good quality but you can get paper and you can turn it into cardboard and so the, the, this corrugated cardboard is often 100% um, recycled which is really great right um, so the more that we can use this 100% uh, recycled corrugated cardboard, the better. Uh, and you can just make it into anything. And then, you know, when it starts to wear out, you can just compost it or re-recycle it. And I think that's a really exciting building material that we could do a lot more with rather than just using constant disposable plastic. Uh, that's probably my favourite one. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in that for cardboard to replace plastic packaging. Uh, but I wouldn't say that's something I use in my normal life because I just don't have a need to constantly fill my um, my life with uh, cardboard furniture. Uh, but I do really enjoy seeing it when I, when I see it out. I live a fairly, fairly modest existence. Absolutely. I adore making my own skincare and beauty products, um, which I mean is pretty obvious because I have a whole business around it. But I've never gotten into making my own sunscreen before. That's definitely something that I'll have to try next summer when the sun's actually out again. You can just get the zinc oxide powder, huge bag of it. It's really cheap. I've got basically a lifetime supply now. I think I spent $10 on Amazon and got this giant bag and now I will never need to buy it again ever. Oh, very nice. So switching gears a little bit, let's talk about Zero Wasteify, the app that you developed to better measure municipal waste. Where did that idea come from? Who is that for? And what has it achieved so far? Well, Zero Wasteify came from uh, a concept. There's a company called Opower, which it was part of my um, learning about them was part of this lightning bolt moment I had uh, where I realized that when you compare people's environmental data against each other that really drives change uh, which led me to writing the book um, but when I thought about that I thought well Opower do that for electricity they put a little bar chart in your electricity bill that says how much you compare to your neighbors and they get a good result just by adding that to the electricity bill so I thought okay well they've got electricity down we could do this to everything else so I thought why not waste why not garbage you know, I, I really care about uh, plastic waste, that we have too much plastic waste. So I was emotionally engaged in the issue. Uh, and I thought that sounds really exciting. So 
um, I just started calling up garbage truck companies and pitching the idea and saying, you know, um, do you measure the amount of waste? Does the arm on the garbage truck have a load sensor on it and it tells you how much it weighs? And I found that no garbage trucks anywhere in the world have these load sensors, like none of them weigh how much the garbage weighs in order to send the report. But there was a few universities that have it. So the scales exist and you can put them on. It's just that there hasn't really been a demand for it and people haven't been pitching the concept. So I found that the University of Santa Cruz actually have the, them installed and the arm on the garbage truck measures every garbage bin and it measures it and it sends it through the cloud through like a mobile 3G chip with a GPS locator of the like latitude and longitude of where it's located and it sends it to a database. So we had something to work with, right? Um, so I actually worked with the Santa Cruz, the University of Santa Cruz to develop a front end application that took the data from the garbage trucks and actually put it online and in real time, you know, every time the garbage truck goes around, it picks up a bin, it shoots that data to the app and it updates on the browser. And so we created a leaderboard of all of the campus uh, buildings. So they're all, I think there's 12 or 13 of them um, from the most wasteful to the least wasteful uh, and a few other graphics and, of course, some emotion. We had to put some um, happy banana slugs for the higher performing. High performing means low waste uh, uh, um, campus, uh, campus buildings. Uh, and so the concept of Zero Wasteify is to apply this to cities. So you get a electricity bill that shows you how much electricity you use. Why shouldn't you also have a waste report that shows you every month how much waste you produce? And then if you have a low month, it gives you a smiley face. Uh, and then this chart, the motivation that these numbers provide, can then uh, pull you or helps you segue into actually adopting zero waste living. It's the motivating force that gets you to start making your own toothpaste and quitting using disposable plastic bottles and making sure that you are really careful to compost your food waste, not throw it in the trash. Uh, so that's the concept of Zero Wasteify. And so we're currently pitching it to cities to um, try and get the first pilot with actual residential houses uh, or businesses off the ground. That is incredible. So it it's a actual mixture of not just education, but actually the gamification and the sounds like the feedback loop and the competition being in competition with the other on campus with the other campus buildings so to bring about tangible change that definitely is incredible i saw the urban heat crisis referred to in your concept for green cocoons you specifically said that urban heat is one of the most critical pillars in tackling climate change it's killing people in the thousands and no one is talking about it can you explain what the urban heat crisis is exactly and how your green cocoon idea could help solve it yeah, it's crazy. Very few people know about the urban heat island. That's what it's called technically, the urban heat island. And it's this phenomenon that happens is that when we build cities with lots of concrete and lots of black asphalt, the cities start to get really hot and they get about 10 degrees hotter than surrounding areas. So if your city is in a part of the world that has hot summers, like a lot of cities are, the city gets really, really baking hot. And the reason why this is such a big issue is because, number one, it spikes the electricity grid 
because everyone turns on their air conditioners. So when it gets really hot, imagine not only is it hot, it's now 10 degrees hotter. So you imagine everyone's got the air conditioning on. It's really hard to maintain that load on the electricity grid. So then they need more power stations to come on. These extra gas, um, inefficient gas power stations come online. So that's one of the big reasons why we just, in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, why we can't make progress on the carbon footprint of cities until we address how hot they get in summer. They're directly related. Um, one, the heat causes this big spike in carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, and then socially, people get sick. Like people die, hundreds of people in the United States die from heat exposure every year. And there have been some uh, heat waves around the world that a lot of people die. When I mean a lot, I mean 10,000 people. There was one in Europe, 15,000 people died. In Russia, apparently 50,000 people died. In uh, There was one recently in India where about 3,000 people died. So when we have these heat waves, I mean, they're, they're actually lethal, big, big heat waves. Uh, they also increase the amount of air pollution because they catalyze the chemicals that make smog. Uh, and they also increase violent crime. There's a direct relationship between how heat and uh, violent crime and rape. So basically when people get hot, they get more agitated and they just do more bad things. So there are all these different reasons why we need to keep cities cooler. And the only way to keep them cooler is by more trees and more green spaces and painting them white. It's kind of really simple, low-tech solutions. Uh, but these big expanses of hard concrete and asphalt, it just has to end. The age of that style of building and planning has to come to an end. When I was looking at urban heat islands and when I looked at the thermal photography of a city, one thing that really stands out when you take a thermal image, which is like, like a heat with a heat camera, is that the roads and the car parks are the hottest bits, which is kind of obvious when you think about it. You know, you walk out onto black asphalt and it's really hot. Um, but I thought, well, we just need some sort of shading device, like some sort of easy thing. Like, why don't we have horizontal shaders, like a trellis with vines over it, but it's like horizontal and it can go over roads or it can go over car parks. So I just thought this sounded like a really fun idea. So I just mocked it up in Photoshop and I called it the green cocoon. Um, and it's just an idea at the moment. Uh, but if any city wants to install one, I will figure out how to build it. So. It's just, just an idea right now um, to put it out there. But I hope that one day we can build a real one. And something else that you've created is called the Urban Canopy, uh, which helps cities reveal what areas are hotspots, contributing to those urban heat island effects, uh, and then determining how to best address it with a report on the environmental benefits of green roofs or walls, such as pollution and carbon dioxide reduction and electric bill savings. So where did the idea of Green Canopy come from? Did that come before or after Green Cocoon? Was it something you kind of worked on all together? And uh, where has that gone so far? Oh, well, all of these ideas just come from using this measurement first, like we were talking about how, earlier, just looking at the data first and thinking, well, what can I do with this data? All, everything I do comes from that. Uh, so when I was looking at the, um, the, the spike, the demand spike in the electricity grid, I'm like, well, the, the electricity grid really peaks during summer with air conditioners. 
so how can I present this information in a way that's going to drive change? And I thought, well, why don't we get thermal images of cities? We could get a thermal camera and photograph these buildings. And then if we photograph the building, you could see, people could see that it was hot, you know, because you can't really see temperature. Uh, And so I just thought that sounded really exciting, like a really fun thing to do. So I started researching it and the more phone calls I made and research, I realized that it was actually, is really viable and it's definitely needed. So uh, I've just been basically pitching the concept and getting all of the technical uh, requirements in place to do thermal mapping with a high resolution thermal camera of cities and putting it on the web. So it's not hidden in academic reports. That's one thing it's been done before, but it's been, Wrap, it's not out there for the public to see. It's in some government report somewhere in somebody's drawer. But we want to put it, um, the, the website's urbancanopy.io, uh, take this environmental data and put it on the web so anybody can look it up. So you can just put in your address and then you can see what the environmental data is, what the heat data is for that particular location. And then we can update it and we can also make it beautiful uh, and then have it direct people to information where they can take they can take action so it's like okay your your uh property it's got a real hot patch on it this is what you got to do you got to plant a tree you got to paint it white this is how you do it these are the local suppliers uh to drive action uh but it's it's very exciting the potential of being able to take a thermal camera and take a high resolution map of a city so you can see where those hot parts are and then because it's so visually beautiful as well because it looks like a rainbow the way these cameras take the images people can look at them and they're like oh my god look that area is red oh that area is red oh look there's my school oh my god oh my god uh the the images are really uh they're really emotionally driving for people uh and I think they really uh I mean I haven't we haven't actually done a map yet but I think from uh, I've done a lot of research in the space and spoke to other people that have done some of these maps, the way they describe how people respond to the maps. So it really sort of catalyzes people to want to start making an action or making a change. That is wonderful. So Katie, what is next for you and how can we learn more about you and your projects? Uh, well, I am just, I've got an Indiegogo campaign out now to uh, promote my book, How to Save the World. So I would be delighted if anybody wanted to uh, get a copy of that. You can get it from my website, Katie, that's K-A-T-I-E, Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K.com. There's a link on there. You can get it from Indiegogo. Uh, And the book is also, you know, an inspiring, uh, optimistic vision of what we can do for the world. So um, I'm really excited to share that and to share my my hope and my optimism for uh, the future of the planet. Uh, and also working on these projects that we've been talking about with my company, Hello World Labs, trying to get our first thermal map of the urban heat island uh, onto the web that's free and public and available for people, uh, try and get people their first garbage report so they can just see a chart of how much garbage they use. Uh, that's going to be really exciting. Um, and it is any other environmental data that we can map and we can make public uh, there's a whole bunch of other ideas I've got on the, um, on the company website and helloworldy.com, a uh, bunch of other things. Uh, but I'm, I'm particularly excited about this thermal thermal imaging uh, and just bringing that data out to people and using, using data to drive change. You know, that's what I focus on, how to get environmental numbers to drive environmentally friendly action. Yes, and all oh, of and the links. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, and my podcast. 
<laughs> and if if you are a deep sustainability nerd like me, like you really like to get into the, the nitty gritty of how to influence people around you, my podcast, How to Save the World, interviews academic researchers, people who actually do PhDs in how to get people to take their coffee cup to their reusable coffee cup to Starbucks. There's a whole social sciences around that. So the How to Save the World podcast, we go into that in detail for the, for the deep sustainability nerds. Yes, and I will have links to both of your websites, um, your book on Indiegogo, your podcast, and all of that for everybody to check out in the show notes for this episode. So Katie, thank you so much. This was an incredibly enlightening podcast, and I am in love with your book. It is teaching me so much about how to do better at the work that I'm just getting started in, and I hope that my audience will also give it a read and be inspired by it as well. So once again, Katie, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for having me. And I'm so delighted that you've uh, enjoyed the book and are getting a lot out of it. It really uh, means a lot to me. Thank you so much for listening to the Hippie Haven podcast. Your support means the world to me. If you found value in today's episode, I encourage you to become a patron of the podcast. For just $5 a month, you can help me continue the educational work I'm doing here with all of my wonderful guests. And in return, I'll pick up a bag of trash in your honor. Visit patreon.com forward slash a hippie in a van to support this podcast. I also have an exclusive community for the podcast over on Facebook. So if you want to connect with me and other like-minded people, just type hippie haven in the Facebook search bar and join our group. Thanks again and stay tuned every Wednesday for the next episode.